it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ahoy, Mets fans. Welcome to episode 203 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore, and I, like you, am frustrated by the Mets being swept by the Braves. The Braves. Come on, guys. Anyway, we're not going to let that get us down. We've got a big show tonight, all sorts of fun stuff going on. And so I'm going to get right into my conversation with Chris McShane. So take it away, boys. So, Chris, I I have a question for you involving Jay Bruce. Is Jay Bruce the worst single decision that the Sandy Alderson front office has made? Ooh. All right. Is that trade the biggest blemish on the Alderson front office? Now, just just to refresh you and our listeners a little bit, they right. signed DJ Carrasco to a two-year contract. Yeah, eh, reliever. Um, I believe when he was signed, they even talked about him being a spot starter at times, which was, you know, thankfully not really a thing. Um, you know, they, um, you know, uh, Chin Lung Hu, big Alderson acquisition. Um, some might say that the right extension might be, uh, you know, a big black mark on the Alderson regime. Um, I, would, I would not, but... I would not. Uh, the non-offer of a contract to Reyes when he departed, which again, I would not say was necessarily a blemish on the Alderson regime, but, you know, some might. Um, yeah, th- those are just some of the uh, the lowlights... Of, right. of, of his well, the, tenure. The, the Pagan trade. The Pagan trade, yes. Almost forgot that one. Um, 
But is the is the Jay Bruce one the one that makes the least sense and that's worked out the poorest? I mean, to this point, yes. Um, just because it was kind of an awkward fit to begin with, and I didn't like it at the time, and I'm afraid that Dilson Herrera turns into, you know, Anything? a very good major league <laughs> second baseman. Yeah. Um. There's a chance that doesn't happen, and in the end, that it kind of looks like a wash. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's the most likely outcome, but that's certainly possible. But I think it only really looks bad if he continues to play and doesn't turn it around. I mean, it looks bad because he's been bad for six weeks. Yes, but um, if if he, I and mean, there's nothing. Absolutely nothing that makes me think this is going to happen. But I'm just putting out a hypothetical here. Okay, okay. If Jay Bruce suddenly finds it and has a Daniel Murphy kind of week, and it can be just a week, and it could be the last week of the regular season, it could be during the playoffs, but if he hits five home runs in a week, which I know that's not quite what Murphy did, but uh, you know, if he does something along those lines... All of a sudden, it's going to, you know, reframe how people look at it, I think, going into the winter. Now, if I'm betting at it, I don't expect that to happen. Uh, and it's not It's not outside the realm of possibility, though. Right. No, I mean, he's, even if you, you know, whether it's war or or just, just the offensive numbers alone, you know, even if you take the defense out, he's pretty clearly better than he has been with the Mets as a hitter. And mm-hmm. even in his two seasons preceding this one in Cincinnati, they were bad, but they weren't this bad. Right. You know? So I, but it, it it's tough. So, you know, we're talking about it now and I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to defend it, but just put it into context. But on a day to day level, I think I have a tendency to try to support anybody who's on the team. Mm-hmm. And find the good things and all that. And, man, I am just, I'm done. I'm done with Jay Bruce. I can't do it anymore. And I don't, like, I don't particularly think that Conforto is going to be amazing if he plays every day this year. Um, And that, you know, that's not a knock on his long-term production. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I, I just, I don't need to see Jay Bruce playing every day. I hope this sounds really silly in a week. Or a month, uh, but yeah, man, I, I am. I'm just. I'm done. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, you know, Conforto came up to lead off the ninth inning. That we're recording this by Tuesday night after the Mets lost a heartbreaker of a game five to four to the Braves, um, putting them down two games to none in the series, which ends tomorrow evening. Um, by the time you hear this, you'll know what happened tomorrow night, but we don't know just yet. But Conforto came up to lead off the ninth. And he hit, it wasn't quite a rocket, but he hit a hard hit ball back to the pitcher that was that was turned into an out. And I feel like we haven't seen Bruce make that solid contact in a week. I know that's not true. That's just what it feels like. As you're watching Bruce, it just looks like, oh, he's just not hitting anything. He's just weakly topping things over or weakly popping it up or striking out looking. 
he just looks completely and utterly lost. And like you said, this trade didn't make a ton of sense to begin with. The Mets didn't need another lefty corner outfielder, but they went out and got him anyway, presumably because they felt his offensive prowess would be worth the loss of runs in center field with Granderson playing there or Conforto playing there or whatever. But it's just been an unmitigated disaster. It was a really interesting conversation. I don't know. Were you watching the game or were you listening to it on the radio? Uh, watching. Okay, yeah, so you saw this one too. Keith and Ron were talking in the booth about how if Keith was managing, he'd have pulled Bruce for a pinch hitter in that situation. Uh, right. where, where Collins did pull him for Eric Campbell, of all people. And then Eric Campbell, of all people, got a hit. But that's a whole other story. And Ron said that if if, if he was managing... And he wanted Jay Bruce to have a role in the team the last 10 or 12 games of the season. He would keep him in the game. And yeah, that, it, it was certainly interesting. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting conversation. And I was thinking about it. And is there any justification for Bruce starting the rest of the way out? Like the majority of the games, you know, obviously he can get a day off here and there, but is there any justification that makes any sense to you that gives Bruce the chance to start, especially against uh, left-handed pitching the rest of the way? I don't think so, but I guess they'll give it the caveat that there's not a lot of time left here to figure it out. And you kind of have two options in right field in Conforto and Bruce who, who might be able to be the everyday guy. So I guess part of me says give Conforto the next, uh, you know, week, mm-hmm. just give him the next week, see what happens. And as much as I don't like making decisions based on who's hot and short term results, crazier things have happened in baseball, right? So give Conforto a week, if it doesn't go well, okay, revisit it. Give Bruce a week, the final week of the season. See what happens there. You know, it, it, see if you, see if a guy can kind of catch fire enough to give you confidence, even if it's not like the most well reasoned confidence. Just something to grasp onto to say that right field is going to be okay. And if both of them fail, and they make the wild card game. Put Granderson back in right and let Diazza play center. I mean, Lagaris is back on the team now. He, he is. He's but, not swinging a bat yet. Right. But maybe by the wild card game, he is. And you then know, that, that 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 is you know it's and then, possible. Then I'm with you. Then then I'm. I think either way, actually, I think you're better off with with somebody else in center field and putting Granderson back in right. Um. Yeah. You know. I mean, it, it's crazy. I think last week I mentioned something about. Maybe Bruce's option isn't picked up. I think there's no way his option's picked up now. Right now, if there's if he doesn't show anything between now and the end of the season, there's part of me, and I don't know if they would bite the bullet and do this, but there's part of me that thinks that maybe he doesn't end up on the postseason roster. I would bet strongly against that, but he's been that bad. Yeah, um... Like there would be a baseball argument to be made that they have a better chance at winning, you know, a, a division series with other guys on the team. I mean, and that's crazy. It is crazy that a guy with is it twenty eight home runs now? I think he's sitting on twenty nine, right? I mean, twenty nine, maybe. 
you know, a guy with that many home runs could not make the playoff roster, but I mean, you're right. I think the argument would be that even just as a pinch-hitting threat late in the game, he holds more value than insert other outfielder name here, the Deaza or uh, in that very limited role. But how often does that limited role come up? You know, right. I, the, there are other players fit more of a well-rounded roster construction standpoint than he does. That's a good point, though. I don't know. Man, um, I'm not quite ready to get into who should be on the playoff roster yet. We're still a week or so away from that, but um, that's an excellent question. Yeah, it's a question I hope they have to answer. Yeah. And despite these two losses to the Braves, one of which I had the misfortune of sitting through in person, um, I'm still generally optimistic. The Cardinals and Giants have not been... The Giants may not be capable of holding a lead past the seventh inning. Yeah. And that alone could be enough for the Cardinals and Mets to both get in. Right. Uh, the Cardinals are also, you know, as we've discussed, not 100% healthy, kind of flawed overall. You know, there's there's enough there that by no means are two losses to the Braves, as frustrating as they are, going to make me give up. Right. Uh, but... But yeah, I think it's been a nice reminder. I said this. I was at the Monday night game where you know Syndergaard just didn't pitch well, and that was that. Um, leaving that game, I said it's it's kind of a reminder that they haven't clinched anything yet. Yes, and the Braves have given them a harder time this season than they should have. Um, so you know, it's nice that they're going to have. Uh, the Philadelphia here for uh, for four games starting Thursday, but yeah, and it's funny as bad as the Braves are, you know, and and this is just sort of a general sports thing uh, that that comes to mind for me a few times a year, watching, you know, all of my teams. Sometimes you just get combinations of teams that you don't match up well with, right? And for whatever reason, the you know, whether it's luck of the draw with who pitches or, you know, the types of pitches that your guys throw and their guys can hit well or whatever it is. Or it's just a freak thing that in one year, you know, it just so happens to be that way. It's uh, it's one of those things. You don't declare the Braves the better team if they win the season series because clearly they weren't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. But yeah, yeah. I'm just and I'm I'm looking in terms of luck of the draw and who you face. Uh, Tehran or or Tehran, sorry, mispronounced. Uh, <laughs> okay. T- tonight, as we record, that was the fourth time he faced the Mets this season. You know, considering the number of times the teams play each other, even in a division, it's a lot, but. Still, you don't draw the other team's best pitcher four times, four out times of 18, every season. Yeah. So, you know, and I think the Mets have gotten lucky in other regards with missing an ace here or there. Right, especially with play. Washington. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, they haven't faced Scherzer, what, the last two series? Yeah. So, you know, it, that it's not – like, I hate to chalk it up as an excuse. No, I know what you're saying. But, but it helps, you know, in – 18 or 19 games against the Braves, if 
if you got to run four times and he was excellent, excellent, pretty good and uh, and good against the Mets, that's you know that that's a factor. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm glad the Mets are playing the Phillies and the Marlins from here on out. I feel better about their chances against those teams than I do against the Braves. Just because, like you said, just this year hasn't been a good matchup for the Mets when they're playing the Braves. Um, now, when we spoke last week, you said that at the end of this homestand, they had to go 8-2 and two for you to be happy. Yeah, we're... we're... <laughs> so, we're, we're at 3-2 we're at, uh, uh, right now. So. Yep, five in a row. Five in a row. Let's and make, then if not, we'll get back to... You said 7-3, and three. you'd still be happy? I'd still be happy 7-3, and three, yeah. Yeah, no, given what's happened so far, I will adjust my expectations. I'll let one loss to the Phillies slide. Okay, fair enough. And I will, I will settle for seven and three. Okay, I still want eight and two though. And at, at this moment, it is still possible. Yeah, I, I understand that desire. I do. Uh, it is still possible, and we'll see. What's not possible, Chris, is seeing Jacob Degrom pitch again for the Mets this season. After we were speaking last week about how he was the player. We felt most valuable to the Mets to come back. He has, uh, you know, some elbow issue uh, with scar tissue. It's not a Tommy John situation, but it is a a multiple month recovery uh, after the surgery that he's undergoing on Friday. So Degrom is out for the rest of the season. While this is a huge bummer, it. It seems like it's not a major issue with his elbow, which is a good thing. And while it will hinder this season, it will not hinder DeGrom's career going forward, it appears. So um, how bummed were you? I mean, the answer is obviously going to be very bummed. But, you know, how worried does the loss of DeGrom make you for the Mets' playoff chances? And not just chances of getting in, but chances once they're in the playoffs. I mean, it's a significant blow in both of those regards. And as you said, the long-term prognosis doesn't sound terrible. I think the bionic Mets are going to be really good at pitching next year. <laughs> um, you know, and we, we did say that last year to be fair. True. But I think more of them are going to have, have surgery that they're coming off of next year going in. Right. Where it, it, DeGrom, it'll be the nerve issue. Matt's whatever happens the rest of the way, he's still going to get the bone spur. Syndergaard bone spur. Uh, Syndergaard may or may not actually have that done. That that sounded, you know, it sounded a little more like a sure thing in June, and now, you know, I don't know if they necessarily do it. Um, but obviously, Harvey already had his surgery. Wheeler still hasn't come back. You know, it's, it. Anyways, that yeah. that's 2017 in terms of in terms of this year. <laughs> Um, when I heard that DeGrom was going to be starting on Sunday, I got very excited because, you know, as much as right now we all have in our heads that it's going to be lined up that, you know, Syndergaard will be pitching the Giants. Everybody has their ace lined up. So it's, you know, Carlos Martinez, Bumgarner, Syndergaard are all lined up for the wild card game as things stand right now. Um, but this is going back several months. If the Mets were in a wild card situation, I kind of like the option of being able to throw everybody on that final weekend. 
you know, to, to make sure that you got there. Right. And then having options to choose from. So in terms of the wild card game itself, I will, uh, you know, live and die with Syndergaard. That's fine. He might have been the choice even if everybody was healthy. You know? I mean, it's easy to say since he's the only one who is. <laughs> Don't knock Cologne. But, Cologne's healthy too. No, no, no. Then I'm not. I'm not. But but in, in a one-game scenario. I'm, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you, of course. I know. I know. But, but yeah. So those being the circumstances – that's just the way that you wanted to line up. But it really would be nice if you got to the – and I don't even want to imagine the last game in Philadelphia being the make or break oh. to get in. I've lived through two of those already. Yeah, I hope it's wrapped up in a good way before that. But, you know, say you get to that point and you could use Syndergaard out of the bullpen, you know, to help get you there. You know, you get say you get four or five innings out of one of the replacement starters, and they've all performed pretty well. But you know, you want to bridge the starter to Reed Familia gap, and you don't have Syndergaard because you you know you need him if you're going to have any shot in the wild card game. Um, that's where it hurts. So, if the Mets can take care of business and finish this homestand strong and come out of it, and the Giants and Cardinals don't match them with you know even going to your seven and three let's say they go four and one unless the giants and cardinals also go four and one or five and oh over that span the match should be in good shape yes so to that point you know it it doesn't make that much difference because you still get your best pitcher in in that wild card game and then if they advance past that point you know, I think part of it depends on Matt's, but, you know, in any one playoff game, can Seth Lugo or Robert Gazelman go out and throw a gem that nobody will be picking them to throw? But I don't know. Anything could happen. There, there aren't that many playoff games. They could get rocked and they could lose the game as a result, or they can go out and be great, you know. And I completely understand that anybody who's as far as they go and I would much rather have a healthy everybody uh, but specifically DeGrom in this case but man like we're at the point even if they're in the playoffs with everything they've gone through this year it's it's kind of like it's miraculous I mean it's crazy right they are I think they're already playing with, with how's money I know the expectations were high coming in but, uh, I mean, I said this to you last week. If if you told us in April the Mets would be in the position they're in right now, in the in in the wild card position without Wright, Duda, Harvey, Wheeler, Degrom, um, Walker, who am I forgetting? Lagaris, Duda. I said Duda already. Oh, well, uh, I, I miss him that much. I miss him too. Like all having missed significant time. You know, (laughs) even if we said like Jose Reyes would be the the batting leadoff for the Mets in September, it would have all seemed crazy. I think you're right. I think this is a house money situation. But because of how good last year was, 
it seems like we should be doing. It seems like the team should be doing better. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of a positive sign. In a way that, you know, that they have gotten this far, and I don't want that to be the, the end point. Right. But. You know, as much as there have been concerns about depth. Uh, in various spots on the roster and all that. It would be hard to have a team go through a whole lot more injury-wise. And, you know, somehow they've patched it together. And they didn't trade away, you know, Dilson Herrera might hurt. And I, I'm not knocking him, and it's kind of a weird situation because he didn't have prospect eligibility. Right. So, you know, he wouldn't be on a list. Uh, he probably, if he could be eligible for that, he'd probably still be somewhere closer to the top. But I guess my point is they didn't trade away Rosario. Um, whatever your Smith feelings are on Smith, they didn't trade him away. You know, I, I don't think like Herrera might have still been ranked maybe third or fourth if he was still a prospect on a Mets list this right, winter. Right. But I feel like Rosario is in particular is held in a much, much higher regard than than Herrera at this point. Oh yeah. So they might have made one trade that'll burn them, but they didn't go and spend their very top prospect to get a guy who didn't help. You know? So they didn't I don't know. They, I think the overall point I'm trying to make is that they didn't go and do anything too crazy or right. sacrifice too much. You know, I, I think the Mets can withstand the loss of Dilson Herrera. I don't think that kills them for next year. No. Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, well, not to get too far down that road, but I think the ideal scenario is that Rosario starts the year in Vegas you know, keeps doing what he did this year, and then you can, whatever you do at second base, he might be able to force him his way up. And, you know, Cabrera's under contract. Reyes is around, depending on how they, you know, configure the infield. You know, Giacchini might have a shot to to play second base. There's enough guys around that you Wilmer can Flores, T.J. Rivera. Right. The Kelly seemingly, Johnson. Kelly Johnson, the seemingly maybe would return Neil Walker. Right. Like, there's enough to to put together there that I don't think they killed anything. Because Rosario excites me. And I don't I don't want to think too much about 2017 yet. But, <laughs> but I don't know. There's just... The other NL East, East teams have their shortstops, who they got for free from the National League West, which really isn't fair. <laughs> so maybe the Mets can just bring one up who was their own, who might be, you know... I don't want to set expectations too high with what Trey Turner has done so far, but <laughs> and I know he's done it a lot, not playing shortstop yet. But right. yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, uh, odds that Neil Walker resigns at the Mets. Ah. Uh... I'll say 40, 60. 40 for re-signing? Yeah. I want it to happen, and I hope it, it does, but 
I don't know. What would your ideal, and I, your ideal can't be like one year, $300,000. Like what's, what do you think a realistic uh, <laughs> Walker contract would uh, look you like? You spoiled my AAOP, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that was going to be the whole thing. I, the, one year, 300 Below league minimum. Right, somehow. Somehow right, that yeah, happens. Yeah. Uh, well, 300 now and a 100, you know, <laughs> deferred over the next five years. Yeah. Um. So what does Neil Walker get? So my, I, I think my ideal scenario is that he does come back. Uh, and then if he's in a situation where you've signed him for multiple years, you might be able to move him around a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, not that there's a million positions he could play, but he could be a guy who you might be able to get some significant reps at third base. He's not worried about his free agency, or, you know, or, yeah. or kind of like the long-term track of his career. Uh, and I don't think that's really that uncommon. You know, it's certainly not a knock on him or it doesn't make him seem like a selfish player uh, at all that he wanted to kind of just stick at second base while he was playing this year. Right. Because you see, you know, other guys who make position changes, and some of them have been much higher caliber, uh, but they don't necessarily do it until they get, you know, in, into a situation where they're going to be with the team for a long time, and then right. they adjust. Um. So, yeah, Walker, coming off the season he had, I'm going to guess he, he gets at least 15... 15 to 17 million a year, right? I would think so. But I was going to say the, 17 to 20 a year. Yeah. Yeah, no, in, in, in the current state of affairs, that, that's probably more accurate. And it's a pretty weak free agent class, too. Right. Well, I, I know I've said this before on the show. Neil Walker is the free agent class <laughs> at second base. Right. Yeah. That, that is it. Like, you go look at the list on MLB trade rumors. There's nobody else there you can sign and, and go, oh, that's my starting second baseman. Not going to happen. So we go in the 17 to 20 range. Let's say 17. You said 15 to 17. Let's, let's, let's say 17 for now. Right. So, you know. And he's turning, what, 31? Uh, yeah, let's double check. Pretty sure that's accurate. Does rain... Not rain. Condensation rains down upon my air conditioner. <laughs> I thought you were just typing very loudly. No. Uh, that is that is very loud. Usually we have a guest appearance from a dog, but yeah. this week is an air conditioner. So yeah, Walker is 31. He'll be 32. Um, oh, sorry. No, he just turned 31. So he won't be 32 until September. Okay. Okay. Of next year. So... The combination of coming off the back surgery and the age, part of me thinks he'll he'll get that, you know, market rate in, in the range that we're thinking, but I think it might cost him a year or two. Yeah, I'd say you're looking at a three-year, fifty million dollar contract. Yeah, maybe with a with a with an option for the fourth year. Can we bring back the Omar? The vesting option, yeah. Oh, yeah, a vesting option. Omar's contract. Hashtag Omar's contract. You know, I mean, given in in the scenario that he's in, I that think makes that a lot of sense. Kind of makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
I don't uh, hate uh, the vesting uh, contract, the vesting option. I just hated it for the players that he gave it to. Right. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm. Uh. I'm with you. I think we're in the same range here. You know, this is a guy who has always been above league average as a hitter. Uh, maybe not a gold glove player at second base, but certainly never a huge liability. You know, uh, he, his defense rated well, and you hate to read too much into defensive metrics in one year, but it rated well with the Mets this year. In his time with the Pirates, it was usually below average, but not by a lot. And if you watched him, he didn't look like a disaster out there. No, no, like, yeah, like I said, you know, not not a gold glove caliber defender, but certainly a, a capable second baseman. If there was such a thing as a bronze glove... You know he might he he might be in line for that. Yeah, right. Two so, two notches so below yeah. gold. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I just hope you know this season was kind of a nice. The last year have been a nice break from constant worrying about the Wilpons finances. Yes. Uh, you know, and they weren't necessarily going to spend a ton of money until Cespedes worked out for this year. And the payroll looks pretty respectable. Um, I hope we don't have to get back into that. You know, if if they were able to do it this year, my hope is that they can keep it around that level going forward. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, I would hope you could keep Neil Walker around. And Cespedes. And then not... Right, and, and not have it cost you the opportunity to sign Cespedes. And to tie it all together, just a reminder, Jay Bruce could cost $13 million next year, or he could cost zero. What's the buyout? Do you know? I think it's $1 million. Oh, then it... Man, we can take up a collection for $1 million. That Yeah, should... that, that would be a... That'd be a cause that might be attainable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's double check. But I think I think it's pretty low. I think it's I thought 30. it was five million. What? No. But that that could just be a number that's in my head for no real reason. All right. Well, we have to check Cod's contracts on this yeah. to to be sure. Jay Bruce. Where is Jay Bruce? They stopped updating Cod's contracts. Cod's Reds. What? Well, the, at least the spreadsheet for uh, payroll obligations, which is sort of like my one of my favorite resources on the internet, mm-hmm. that did not have Bruce on it. Neither does the Reds. <laughs> Cots, you're failing us. Important information, and our listeners are waiting. You're. It's one million. You're right. All right. There we go. Yeah, it's on the on the team page, not on the spreadsheet, right? I, I just Googled Jay Bruce 2017 buyout. Well, there you go. I'm a good Googler. Um, yeah, for a million dollars, you buy that contract out. Yeah. I, I mean, I just wouldn't want to get stuck in a situation where you go, hey, every team in the league who wants to, you know, that's not a lot of money, but who wants to... Take Jay Bruce, pay him, and give us something in return. And it might be a tough sell if he looks like he can't hit when he's not a red. Yeah. 
my I, I think a worse option than than paying the buyout and having and not getting anything in return is select is picking up the option not being able to trade him and then you're having another season of Conforto getting no reps in the outfield and Nimmo getting no reps in the outfield and uh you know even if Bruce had a ha- I feel like player development for Conforto and or Nimmo is more important than um, than Jay Bruce's 2014 or 2015 season being replicated next year. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I mean, unless Bruce could put up those numbers and learn how to play first base and Lucas Duda is not healthy enough to return on, you know, on like a permanent basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just don't see it. I mean, I'd rather spend the money on Addison Reed, honestly. Absolutely. You know, and that's not a necessarily an either or because they can, they can keep him around as well but if there is a budget and you know i could have reed and cespedes and even 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 out you know no walker mm-hmm. i'd rather have that combination than try yeah. to recapture something i know we say this a lot but addison reed is very good man he really is good i feel like he needs an episode that's all about him maybe when the season's over mm-hmm an Addison like a, Reed appreciation episode? Yeah. Like a deep dive into everything Addison Reed. Tipping the cap back. A look yeah. at Addison Reed's 2016 season. Yes. We're brainstorming here. We are. All right. That's, uh, that's where we stand right now. Chris called it five in a row starting tomorrow. Let's do this. Welcome back, Mets fans. Greg Karam here, along with Steve Saipa, once again, to continue our conversation about the Mets minor league system. And uh, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week, talking about projecting hitters, but we're going to talk about pitchers this time and kind of talk about our methodology for how we go about evaluating pitchers. And, you know, specifically, we want to talk about, you know, what do we look for uh, when we're evaluating a pitcher um you know obviously velocity is king you know it, it, that's mm-hmm. that's the number one thing you look for do you agree with that absolutely i mean the fastball is the bread and butter pitcher of pretty much every single pitcher in baseball so yeah you gotta i mean there's only so much you can do with that eh? you know if the guy's not throwing i mean it's very difficult we'll talk about it later but it's difficult to project a velocity bump in a guy so, you know, that's obviously the first thing that you're always going to be looking for. Um, but beyond that, things that I look for, um, I want to see a guy who knows how to spin a breaking ball. Um, and specifically, a, if he can throw a curveball, because I feel like you can you can teach a uh, slider, especially in this system, uh, with this, you know, field staff that they have. You know, it's I can't think of too many instances where a guy was able to add a curveball and then also I want to see a guy with a good look, be, be able to flash a changeup. And when we're talking about flashing these pitches, you know, we're talking about seeing 
what the pitch can become on a more consistent basis. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, with the curveball slider, I mean, how many times have we heard that a player that either was drafted or we traded for or whatever, you know, had a had a curveball and they scrapped it in favor of a slider? Yeah. And it's a pretty common thing in the system. Yeah. And then, you know, about like about flashing these pitches, um, you know, do you agree with that? Is that you know, you, when you see a guy go out there and he throws some inconsistent breaking balls, some inconsistent change-ups, but then he's able to break one off that, that really is just crisp and nice and it's got the movement and, you know, when you see that, it makes you think that with more tutelage, with more time, they can grow into that pitch and have it become a more consistent, like, major league average type of offering. Absolutely. I mean, if they were able to throw that pitch, it happened. You know, if they threw a good pitch that pitch did come out of their hand, whether they did it, you know, whether <laughs> intentionally, <purpose>. right. <laughs> whether they did it on purpose or by accident, whatever it happened. So with more, um, you know, with more tinkering to the mechanics, maybe whatever it is, you know, it can become repeatable. So, right. So like as in a real life example, talk about Thomas Zabucky and he hits that first qualifier right here. And he throws 90, he can touch 97, but He's got the curveball, and he's also got the, the changeup. Now, the curveball, for me, I like it a little bit more. I thought it was a little bit more consistent, but it also flashed, like, plus. And that, that's something that you can – that's part of the reason why uh, we like Sapucky so much is because that pitch flashed plus, and then the changeup, little less consistent, didn't throw it as much, probably doesn't need to throw it as much at this level, but – did break off one or two really good change-ups too. So when you look at that package, uh, you can project something very nice when it all comes together. Agree? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, so do you – what about like things like um, – see, I, I'm a little bit of an amateur when it comes to some of these other mechanical issues uh, in a delivery like elbow pronation and head tilt and all that kind of stuff and a stiff front leg and all that kind of stuff. Do you have any strong opinions about that kind of stuff? Um, yes and no. I mean, a lot of that stuff, like um, the scouting consensus, you know, will say like this stuff is bad. You know, you don't want a lot of additional movement because it can throw your release point off or this and that, whatever. But as a fan, like, I mean, as, as of someone looking to evaluate a pitcher, I guess I can agree with that stuff. But at the same time, as a fan, I enjoy watching pitchers who have, you know, look at um, Max Wotel, who we just traded to the to the Reds. His yep. delivery was hard to even explain. <laughs> <laughs> as a fan, you know, I, 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 as a person watching baseball, I enjoy stuff like that. Seeing pitchers with really unconventional and unorthodox kind of deliveries. Right. I agree with that. Although John Gant is a little bit much. That's a little weird. You see that, that, that little like leg kick before the windup. little thing, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I appreciate that so much. But uh, no, I get, I get what you're saying. And part of that stuff is about projecting control going forward, right? It's like if, if a guy is falling off to the first base side, it's going to be a lot more difficult to repeat the delivery and develop that consistency that we were just talking about. Um, 
and you know going forward as opposed to a guy who has a nice smooth not a lot of moving parts you know similar to the way we were talking about hitters you know we want you know not a lot of moving parts going on um but i also think that if if you see a guy who's athletic i think that that sometimes can compensate for some of those uh deficiencies in in their delivery Right. I mean, if the pitcher is able to make it work, like Wattel, you know, at least while he was with us, he had pretty decent numbers that kind of fell off when he went to Cincinnati for a few starts. But if a pitcher is able to make it work, you know, if it's not if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's guys who can do it. I mean, look at uh, look at K-Rod. I don't think that anyone would ever have taught yeah. the way that he pitches. I mean, with his arms flailing and falling off to the first base side. But, you know, he's he's athletic enough to make it work. Um so, anyway, so that's some of the things that we, we kind of look for when we're going to be evaluating these guys in the off season, And, you know, going from there, you know, a couple guys in the system took some unexpected jumps forward this year. Uh, Gazelman, for one, Lugo, another, uh, especially Lugo, who just kind of popped up pretty much out of nowhere. I mean, he wasn't really on it. He wasn't on our top 25 um, and part of that was the v- velocity. You know, we had reports that he was in the high 80s, and now he's touching 96, 97. So, you know, what can you do with that? But I will say, that, you know, he's a guy who did, was able to. He had a strong curveball. You know, he he knew how to pitch. Uh, just the limitation there was the velocity. So, I guess the question is, how do we? project forward beyond you know the the flashing of the pitches but is there a way that we can project velocity bumps in pitchers uh, there's probably two things and neither one of them are probably very accurate but one you want to obviously look at the pitcher you know if you have uh, a tall lanky guy you know there's always the chance that okay this offseason he's going to come to camp 20 pounds heavier that's all muscle you know so he's going to mm-hmm. have more velocity mm-hmm. and there's also um, you know, mechanics. Sometimes if a pitcher has doing, if they're doing certain things, it backs up their velocity. So, um, you know, you eliminate those things then the velocity gets a little bump, but obviously it's hard to say like, okay, over the off season, this guy's going to gain 20 pounds over, you know, during spring training, Dan Warthin is going to work with this guy and eliminate this little hitch that's holding him back. Yeah. But those are things I think like the two main things I would, I would say. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, I I think that, you know, having an easy, um, low effort delivery makes you kind of think that the guy is able to maybe potentially squeeze something extra out of there uh, when he gets to the major league level. Although I'm not, I don't know how exactly, maybe ramp up the effort a little bit. I don't know. But uh, we've seen it, a guy like Robert Gazelman, who was really like 91 to 93 and, and even lower at times, as early as earlier this year, mm-hmm. and he was a he's a guy who has a very low effort to d- delivery, and and all of a sudden you know now he's throwing ninety five on a consistent basis, and I mean that obviously t- changes the profile immensely. But um, he's a guy who we said had a low effort delivery, and is, he eventually added some some velocity. So you know with that, uh, there, is there any guy in the system right now who you think is you know, maybe on the verge of taking a leap forward? Uh, well, one guy I was looking at, and I'm not really sure how they're gonna, the Mets are going to use him next season because uh, in college he was used as a starter and a reliever. But it's uh, 
their draft pick from this season in the sixth round, uh, Chris Vial. Okay. Uh, he's he's six foot nine. He's two thirty. So obviously, you you look at that, and the height immediately jumps out at you. And he throws a you know mid nineties fastball that tops out at about ninety eight, ninety nine. And then thanks to his height, you know he gets a little extra um, extension, so the ball appears even faster. So uh, you'd you'd think with like a ninety nine mile power fastball, you know, and he also throws you know a, a show me uh, change up and a decent curveball. But you'd think with stuff like that he would be dominating Kingsport, which is where he was assigned to. Um, but that wasn't really the case. He mm-hmm. threw 20 innings, six starts, and three relief appearances. And he had a uh, 675 ERA. Mm. <laughs> and he did have 27 strikeouts to, you know, to uh, 20 innings. So that's a little over 12 strikeouts per nine innings. But the biggest issue with him was his walk rate. He walked... Uh, 17 guys in 20 innings. Mm. So that's uh, 7.6 uh, walk per nine. So with him, uh, I've, I was looking at some video, and again, I'm, you know, I am who I am. I'm not a major league uh, trainer, nothing like that. <laughs> but I saw a couple of things that, you know, I noticed that if they were fixed, it could definitely help his uh, release point. Yeah. And if, you know, that's kind of, and if that is, uh, addressed you know he could leap out uh possibly in brooklyn i guess if or, or columbia if they want to be a little more aggressive since he's is a, a college pitcher um one thing they notice is that his arm uh drags behind his body when he pitches so that's gonna you know affect the release point mm-hmm. uh another thing is that his leg lift the leg lift in his delivery is a little inconsistent and maybe that's due to his height you know his pretty long legs sometimes he lifts his leg high sometimes it's kind of half-hearted sometimes it's quick and jerky so you know when you're doing that when you're balancing on one leg it causes weight imbalances and then when you're throwing you know you're a little jerked to the side so again that's gonna mess with the release point and then when he plants his leg uh sometimes his foot faces the catcher which is you know the proper release uh uh, landing whatever (laughs) um and then other times it's kind of uh, his his toe is kind of pointing towards the on deck circle, which again shifts his release point and affects his control. Uh, could back up his velocity a little bit, and uh, could even you know hurt your leg, pull a groin muscle, pull a leg muscle, whatever, and be an injury risk. So if he kind of gets tutelage there, you know, just kind of making that release point, you know, taking those little things in his delivery and making his release point more consistent, he'll he'll uh, lower the walks, and that was really his, his main issue. Yeah, so that's that's kind of goes to what we were talking about. I mean, first, first, you know, it sounds like a guy needs um, an off-season of major league tutelage and uh, some tweaking to his delivery, and then taking those instructions and then developing a little bit more consistency hopefully leads to a little bit more command and uh, able to harness that whole package there, so... You brought that guy uh, onto my radar. I, I wasn't really too familiar with him, but uh, Chris, <laughs> Christopher Vale, guys. So yep. that's that's Steve's guy. Um, a guy for me who I think might you know be in the the Lugo Gazelman type leap um, and a little bit closer to the major leagues is Ricky Nat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a guy who 
they kind of used – I mean, they used them out of the bullpen a little bit uh, at times. And this year he kind of slid into the rotation and started the season in St. Lucie. And he pitched pretty well there. I mean, didn't strike out a lot of guys, but he had a 2.14 ERA in 105 innings. And he made a couple of starts in Binghamton and uh, Vegas. I saw a couple of his Binghamton starts. And this is a guy who has three solid off-speed pitches. He's got a slider, a curveball, and a changeup. And he's able to, he's, they look good. Uh, he's able to command them. He's got good movement on them. And his velocity is about 88 to 92. So... He's one of those guys who's right on the cusp, you know. He's like, if he could add a little bit more velocity, he might. It, the whole package might end up being pretty good. And you know, how can you project that velocity? Well, this guy has one of the easiest deliveries I've seen. Uh, very low effort. Uh, he's v- very upright. So it just seems like the type of thing that, with a little bit of coaching, I think that maybe he could squeeze a couple more miles per hour out of that delivery. And um, you know, it could, it could be a good package. I mean, it could be a back-end starter type, uh, which, you know, the, you always need because you're always going to need like six, seven, eight starters throughout the course of a season. So I'm thinking that maybe he might be able to contribute as soon as next year. Um, so I'm a big Net- Ricky Knapp fan. Yeah, and adding to his case is the fact that, you know, his dad is a pitching coach, so he's a very high um, – or former pitching coach, I should say – and, you know, so he's a very high pitching IQ. You know, he knows when to throw a pitch, what counts, you know, what's good, what's bad, if things are working. Yeah. Yeah. The only the only detractor that I would say is, you know, he's only six one, So he doesn't have the same ideal size as a, a Gazelman or a Lugo. Um, but still, it's he's, he's in double A. He pitched in triple A this year. So, you know, could be on the radar as soon as next year. And... Um, so there you go. There's two guys that uh, we kind of like, and uh, there's some background on what we're looking for when we're scouting these scouting. I'll put quotes around that. Uh, <laughs> scouting these pitchers. So that's all the time we have for this week. We will be back here in the same place next week. Take care. Hi, this is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio, and what is there to talk about as I'm recording on this fine Tuesday morning than Tim Tebow, the most wonderful quarterback-turned-baseball player that we've ever seen, but not really. Someone's probably done that before. Well, there have been plenty of high school quarterbacks who have been good at baseball, I'm sure, but Tim Tebow won the Heisman Trophy, and Yet he was out of the NFL after a few years, which I could do a whole nother podcast on why I think even though he wasn't very good, he probably should have at least got another chance because that playoff game he played against the Steelers was really good and who wins a playoff game and then doesn't get another start in the NFL. Um, but the point is, Tim Tebow's with the Mets now and we still don't know exactly who wanted to sign him or why they signed him. Sandy Alderson said they didn't do it just to sell jerseys, and yet Tim Tebow's jersey goes up as soon as they can. On his first day of instructional ball in Port St. Lucie, his jersey goes up, and it's listed as a top seller on 
MLB.com's online shop. He sold more jerseys than David Ortiz and Chris Bryant on that Monday, according to Darren Ravel of ESPN.com. So, for a team that didn't sign Tebow just to sell his jersey, the Mets made sure that his jersey was up there really quickly, even though they don't do that for the guys they sign in the first round of the draft. Uh, they don't do that for guys they sign in the draft at all. But for Tim Tebow, jersey right up there on the shop, and it sells like hotcakes. Uh, I don't know if it's Mets fans or if it's University of Florida fans or if it's just people who love Tim Tebow buying the jerseys. But the point is, this guy is still a huge attraction. It doesn't matter what sport he's playing. He is just the man right now, and he might, he might be the man for the rest of his life. And again, a whole other podcast base could be, you could discuss why this guy is so popular. There have been plenty of Heisman Trophy winners. There have been plenty of guys who win NFL playoff games. There have been plenty of guys who are religious and play sports, and just no one... It, gets near the popularity of this guy. It's really just incredible. You could study this guy, find out what it takes, because he he really is a goldmine when it comes to marketing opportunities, and the Mets decide to strike that. I just, well, it's not that surprising that they didn't admit it because you're kind of admitting you're selling out, but at the same time, he's right now he's far enough away from the Major League Club that it's harmless. But that leads me to another reason the Mets said they signed Tebow, which was so that he'd be an inspiration of sorts to the younger players, but I could see a lot of the younger players resenting this older guy they might not have a lot in common with. It's been talked about how he's many years older than all the other players at the instructional camp, and that's fine. You could still build team chemistry that way, but then he's going to be going away on weekends to film SEC Network stuff and then comes back. And he's got a lot more money than these guys. And it's like, it, you start to realize that it's going to be really tough for for a lot of players to not only look up to him, but just to, to see him as a teammate and see him as an equal when he's doing TV stuff for ESPN. And he's already had all, all these successful opportunities in his life. And no matter what he says, people are just going to, a lot of people are going to think that he's just doing this for for the for the heck of it just to have fun because it's it doesn't seem to be hurting his television career at all how much is Tim Tebow sacrificing to play baseball that's going to be something that's brought up and it could cause some of the Mets other players in instructional league to resent him so look for that to be an issue down the line but for now we're just enjoying the circus that is Tim Tebow and one, I'm kind of joking about this, but one opportunity for the Mets, if this Tim Tebow thing spirals out of control, if it grows to be too much of a distraction, if they need to find themselves rid of Tim Tebow, a certain NFL team run by a certain former Mets executive, or at least he's part of the team running it, has lost Two quarterbacks to shoulder injuries in two weeks. That's right, the Cleveland Browns with Paul D. Podesta on board, who of course worked closely with Sandy Alderson for years. 
for the Mets. They lost Robert Griffin III, their starting quarterback, for the probably out for the season with a shoulder injury. They lost him in week one. In week two, Josh McCown, the backup, goes down with a shoulder injury, although he's expected to miss just a few weeks. But now this team is 0-2, and they're set to start rookie out of USC, Cody Kessler, quarterback. What better way for Tim Tebow to make his triumphant return to the NFL than to rescue the Cleveland Browns? So if you could trade a baseball player to, from, to a football team, uh, this would be a, a really good, really good fit for the Mets, I think, to let T- Paul D. Podesta take Tim Tebow and just see what happens with this Cleveland team that has already had all the hard luck in the world, and now they find themselves down two quarterbacks in two weeks. There's there's nothing really else to lose, so they should at least look into it because Tim Tebow is still probably a better football player than he'll ever be a baseball player as awesome as he looks in a Mets uniform. So that's something to think about as we come to you on Tebow Tuesday, and you'll, but you'll probably listen to this on Tebow Thursday. Tebow, Tebow, Tebow. Um, hopefully the Mets can beat the Braves more often as we go forward. This has been Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio. Hey Mets fans, Steve Schreiber here, and it's time for your This Week in SNY Minute here on Amazing Avenue Audio. On Saturday, Jerry Blevins made his first appearance uh, as a blonde, which came kind of as a surprise to everyone uh, during the off day when he got his hair bleached. Uh, So Gary and Keith made a big deal of this, of course, letting everybody know that Jerry was blonde now. Keith also made mention of one of Jerry's fashion statements, his bow ties. I was going to mention that the newly blonde Jerry Blevins is up in the Mets bullpen. He's joined the, uh, the club, Reyes Cabrera, and now Blevins. He's going to look good in the bow ties. <laughs> you think he's got the bow tie to match the blonde hair? Uh, well... For the fans out there that don't know this, Jerry Blevins loves to wear bow ties when they're on the road, on the airplanes, with his sport coat. I don't think I've ever seen a player that I played with or a player that I've been up in the booth wear a bow tie. Now, of course, the Mets had a general manager who was known for his bow tie. Right. As Mauer strikes out, good fastball away by Salas. Blevins was, of course, up in the bullpen, so once Fernando Salas gave up a double... Terry Collins decided to bring him in. Keith had this to say. Well, we'll see if blondes have more fun. So once Blevins struck out Max Kepler to end the inning, Gary mentioned Keith's line about blondes having more fun. And Keith, thinking he was off the air, muttered a little something. Blondes do have more fun. <laughs> Seventh inning stretch time. That's down one nothing. I could have told you that. So there you have it. Keith knows all about blondes. We'd love to hear some of his stories sometime, but, you know, they're probably a little not safe for SNY's air. So that's all we have for your This Week in SNY Minute. I'm Steve Schreiber. Now back to Amazing Avenue Audio. Hello, my fans. This is 
Lucas Vlahos, and welcome to the Weekly Stat. Uh, this week, I have something very different, so I want you to bear with me. Um, we're going to make some, do something a little wonky, make some major, major assumptions, and get a result that probably won't make you too happy. Um, but the premise is optimistic, at least, so we'll start from there. Um, as I'm recording this, the Braves just beat the Mets for the second straight game. I believe that creates a three-way tie atop the NL wildcard standings with the Cardinals, Mets, and Giants. So it's not even a sure thing that the Mets will make the playoffs at this point, uh, nor is it a sure thing that uh, they'll get past the wildcard game. Uh, but in the case that they do make the playoffs and do get past the wildcard game, they'll almost certainly run into the Cubs in a five-game series for the NLDS. And as I was bemoaning the Mets' injuries to a friend of mine, I the the, guy, the thought occurred to me, uh, just how much is this going to affect the Mets? How much is not having Harvey and DeGrom and Wheeler, and at this point I'm assuming we don't get anything from Mets because I'm a pessimistic Mets fan, and that's what we've been conditioned to expect. So assuming all of the, those four are gone, what's the impact? Uh, so, so let me explain to you the premise of what I've done. I built a small simulator uh, that basically takes in the ERAs of both teams, the Mets and the Cubs, and it will then spit out a percentage over a simulated million series of how many the Mets win. Uh, so what, how did I build this? How, what are the assumptions that went into this? I've done no accounting for the offenses, which probably swings this even more in the Cubs' favor. I haven't accounted for home field, which again swings this more in the Cubs' favor. Um, and I've simplified all the pitching to a rough ERA estimate. So I'm not even thinking about FIP, strikeouts, or anything like that. Uh, so this is extremely bare bones, so take it with a hefty pile of salt. It's more just for the concept of it, the illustration. So the first step then, after coding, is to uh, decide on the ERAs you want to plug into this thing. So what ERA do we want to plug in for the Cubs? What ERA do we want to plug in for the Mets as they are now? And what ERA do we want to plug in for the Mets if everyone was healthy? So starting with the Cubs, uh, their top three starters are Kyle Hendricks, John Lester, and uh, Jake Arrieta. Um, so without fretting over Jake Arrieta's second half struggles, um, or the massive discrepancy between the ERA and FIP on all of those pitchers, the average ERA is about 2.5. I'll take it up to 2.6. Um, because you're also going to mix in some lackey, though probably not in this series. Uh, the bullpen, on the other hand, since they acquired Chapman basically the second half, they have a 2.92 ERA, and that's without a healthy Hector Rondon, who has been borderline unhittable this year. Uh, plus, in the uh, playoffs, you can play matchups, you can concentrate the innings in the best relievers, you can throw your starters in the bullpen, and they'll tick up as well. So I estimated that the Cubs' ERA... Um, even though it's uh, it's it's about in line with their starter ERA and lower than their season reliever ERA, uh, my input for them was 2.6 or so, and I think that's totally justified given the performances we've seen so far. Their elite defense, they've got elite strikeout pitchers as well. Uh, they've got a dominant back end duo. You can quibble. There's definitely ways to quibble with this number. I could spend another three hours estimating just this, but it's in the ballpark. We'll call it in the ballpark. Um. So that's the Cubs, 2.6 is the ERA we're going to plug in for them. So the Mets as is. Uh, the starters they have right now, that's 
Noah Syndergaard, Bartolo Colon, and then some combination of Robert Gesellman, Seth Lugo, and Gabriel Yunoa, which doesn't exactly inspire confidence. That group has an average ERA of 3.2, 3.3. Let's be optimistic and say 3.2. Let's say Thor stays on his game and uh, Cologne doesn't blow up and the reliever and the uh, the, the young rookies are able to stay in the ERA of 4 range rather than the ERA of 5 range, which is no small task against the Cubs. And you might be saying that Lugo and Zellman, Gazelman both have ERA significantly lower than that. It's also extremely small sample sizes on those ERAs, and every projection system projects them to go back into the 4 range. Um, so that's the number I'm using here. For them at bullpen, they have pretty similar overall marks to the Cubs, 3.52 on the season. They also have their dominant duo. Um, and similar to the Cubs, you can also play matchups. You can focus on the best relievers. You can, uh, well, the Mets don't have extra starters to throw in the bullpen now, do they? Um, so the number I've arrived at for the Mets as is about 3.3. So that's the ERA estimator we'll put in for the, the Mets, 3.3 uh, mark. If the Mets had a healthy Harvey and a healthy DeGrom, and a healthy Mats, and even a healthy Wheeler throwing a couple innings here and there in the bullpen, I feel that we could push that ERA all the way down to 2.7, because you're removing 4.0, 4.0, 3.2, that's Cologne, uh, well, in order, that's Lugo, Gazelman, and Cologne from the rotation, and you're replacing it with ERAs in the low threes, high twos, or even mid twos, if Harvey's particularly dominant. Plus, then you lengthen your bullpen with Wheeler and or Mats, um, so up and down, it makes them a lot better, even with the Mets' defensive shortcomings, and we know there's plenty of those. Um, so I'm comfortable pushing that all the way down to a 2.7 in a short playoff series. Um, again, all these estimates are very, very rough. So the three numbers we have, the Cubs, 2.6, the Mets as is, 3.3, and the Mets, if everyone was healthy, around 2.6. So those are our ERA, or 2.7, excuse me. So those are our ERA estimates. So, what does the simulation actually give us? You're not going to like this. For the Mets, as is versus the Cubs. It's a 3.30 ERA versus a 2.60 ERA. The Mets only win 36.9% of the games and only win 26.7% of the five-game series. That's awful. Going into a series like this, if you're... Both, if both playoff teams are presumptively somewhat equal, you hope things are maybe 50-50 or 40-60 or something. This is 75-25, basically. And yes, this model's rough, but that doesn't even seem that off to me. Um, so with what the Mets pitching has now and the juggernaut that the Cubs are, things look pretty bleak. If the Mets were healthy, they're still not favored, but it's much, much better. If the Mets are bringing a 2.70 ERA into this, and the Cubs still have their 2.6. The Mets win 48% of the games and 46% of the series. That's basically a 50-50 split. 55-45, whatever. It's much better than 75-25. So, um, like I said, this is in no way precise. There's massive holes in every step I've done here. It's supposed to be quick, dirty, uh, rough, back-of-the-envelope approximation here. But it does a good job of illustrating just how much impact losing these starters is going to have on the Mets in a short postseason series when uh, a troika or quadruple of devastating starters can dominate and cover up other weaknesses on the team, much like the Mets did last year. 
Uh, and that is your weekly depressing stat. Welcome back to Forgotten Mets. I'm Brian Renzi. This week we'll look back at a rookie pitcher who was instrumental in the improbable push for the pennant in 1973. Since that's Kind of topical given the current Mets situation. Old timers surely haven't forgotten this man, but since his career was cut short, many of the younger among us may never have heard of Harry Parker. Harry Parker was drafted by the Cardinals at age 18 in 1965, and then by Uncle Sam, as he spent 1969 in Vietnam. He had ripped through the minors before going into the military and made his Major League debut his first year back from overseas but spent most of the next two years in AAA as the Cards had several promising young arms. He came to the Mets in a deal after the 1971 season that sent 1969 hero Art Shamsky to St. Louis, along with future late bloomer pitcher Jim Bibby, who was an all-star with the We Are Family Pirates and also one of the, uh, one of the number of pitchers who pitched a no-hitter almost as soon as they got out of flushing. Parker... Pitched well in 72 in Tidewater and started the magic year of 73 by getting a couple of turns in the Mets rotation in April. Those went well, as he only allowed one run in 14 and two-thirds innings, so he accordingly got more chances. He ended up starting off the year 5-0. and Then, Tug McGraw started struggling mightily in June and July, blowing four of six save chances while the Mets season seemed to be spiraling out of control as they fell 12 and a half games out of first, after 80 games. In game 81, Parker came on in the 10th inning and pitched three scoreless frames in a 2-1 Mets win for his sixth victory of the year. He went on to finish eight games in the next month, getting a save in four of them, and giving Tug some breathing room to recover his form. As the Mets made their furious run in September, Parker was right in the middle of it. He did not get scored on in his first five appearances of September, spanning ten and two-thirds innings of relief. In the second game of the doubleheader in Montreal on September 7th, which stretched to 15 innings, Parker pitched three scoreless in an eventual win, which crept the Mets within four games of first place Pittsburgh. But there was no game in which Harry Parker was more crucial than game 156, when he came in during the third inning for an ineffective George Stone and only allowed one hit and one walk over four scoreless as the Mets came back to win and hold on to a slim half-game lead while the Pirates swept a doubleheader the same day. That was as close as Pittsburgh would ever get as the Mets managed to pull away in the last week. His magic didn't quite hold in the postseason, though, as his only appearance in the NLCS came in Game 4 with the game tied in extras. The Mets were up two games to one when NL MVP Pete Rose, fresh off his assault of Bud Harrelson in the previous game, launched a homer which would even up the series. In the World Series, Harry Parker made three appearances, the most eventful being Game 3 at Shea when he came into, once again, a tie game in the 11th inning, this time with the series at one win apiece. With one out, Parker walked Ted Kubiak, who had a 580 OPS on the year. Big mistake. Uh, he did go on to strike out Angel Mangual, 
who was the owner of a 560 OPS, only to have stalwart backstop Jerry Grody drop the third strike, allowing Manguel to reach safely and Kubiak to advance to second. This allowed Bert Campaneris to stroke a single and score the go-ahead run that the Mets would go on to lose the game, fall behind two games to one. Parker also came in during the third inning of Game 7 and stemmed the bleeding after John Matlack got roughed up for four runs, but too much damage had already been done. A shoulder injury in 1974 hurt Parker's numbers, and they were even worse the following year. He was shipped back to St. Louis in 75, then to Cleveland in 76, but he never did recover his stuff, and he retired after the 76 season with the magic dust of 1973 marking his only noteworthy year in the bigs. After baseball, Harry Parker went on to work for Shell Oil and the state of Virginia before passing away at age 65 in 2012. Rest in peace, Harry, and thanks for helping us believe. This has been Forgotten Mets. I'm Brian Renzi. See you next time. Down hazy, really. So I am still all in on the Mets making the playoffs. I still think this is going to happen. I think we're on week three of me saying this. I think the Giants and the Cardinals are bad enough that the Mets are going to slide into it. I think they're going to back into it. I think they're going to win just enough games to not be as bad as the rest of the team still in the running. But we have a caveat this week to my Mets playoff run prediction, and that's that this is going to go down way closer to the wire than I thought, which, I mean, is scary, and my heart rate and my anxiety aren't going to do as well with that, but you know what? It's going to be great. And it's Wednesday, and there is a three-way tie for the National League wildcard, And I don't think that's going anywhere. I don't know that they're going to be literally in a tie for the next week. But I think we're going to see Saturday hit. And it's not going to be very clear who's going on. And that says a lot about the Mets. Because they've been playing. Well, they haven't been playing well. They've been winning. They haven't been playing very well. They've gotten lucky. They've gotten production out of players that I don't think anyone expected production out of. Jay Bruce is still terrible. Terry Pinch hit Eric Campbell last night, so Jay Bruce didn't get another at-bat. And if that doesn't tell you literally everything you need to know about Jay Bruce's Mets tenure, then I don't know what game you're watching. But, you know what? It's working. Wilmer Flores is who knows where. Jacob deGrom is officially done for the season. Noah Syndergaard got shelled last outing, but, you know, it's going to happen. He's not going to literally be perfect every single outing. He still is, you know, in the running for the Cy Young, which feels like a ridiculous thing to say because as much as we as Mets fans know how great he is, it feels like he's still somehow underappreciated, which just feels, it feels silly to say that, but here we are. And then there's just Bartolo chugging along, and you've got Gazelman, who's looked great so far, Luco's still putting it together. Montero is terrible, and, you know, we kind of already knew that. We already had proof of that, but whatever. You know, uh, has looked okay. He looked better in his start, I don't know, whatever it was, Sunday, something like that. No idea if Mats is coming back. They're pretending he's going to start Friday. We'll see about that, because they were also pretending DeGrom was going to start. So, I don't know what to believe on that front. 
but it's going to be really, really close, and I think it's going to be hilarious. So, good luck, everybody. folks that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you all so much for listening we appreciate it we'd also appreciate it if you rate reviewed and subscribe to the show on itunes or stitcher or whatever your podcatcher of choices those reviews and ratings really do make a big difference so thank you you can also direct download the show directly from blogtalkradio.com and you can find amazing avenue on all relevant social media twitter facebook instagram at amazing avenue of course, this should go without saying, but we'll say it anyway. You should visit AmazingAvenue.com for everything Mets-related that you could possibly need. You can also email the show. We love getting your emails. Podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com I would like to thank all the contributors who are on the show this week. You can find each and every one of them on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Aaron is at APY5000. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. Greg Karam is at Greg Karam. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. And the returning Brian Renzi is at BRenz78. You heard Chris earlier say he was uh, amending his 8 and 2 homestand to a 7 and 3 homestand. So because the Mets lost again. Last night, we need to uh, have the team sweep the Phillies to make Chris a happy man. And who doesn't want Chris to be happy? Chris is great. So, come on, Mets. Sweep them Phillies. And until next time, let's keep rooting for the Amazons. Let's go, Mets. Let's go, Mets.